0: If there's anything better than getting a few of your favorite things from McDonald's, it's getting a few of your favorite things from McDonald's for less in the McDonald's
1: app. Mm. Delicious. Order in the McDonald's app today. Right now, only in the app. Enjoy a breakfast sandwich for just $1, like a sausage McMuffin with egg. Offer valid one time per day from 429 to 512.24 at participating McDonald's. Must opt into rewards.
2: Warning, this podcast contains spoilers for the finale of House of the Dragon. Plus, uh, we're going to be talking about the books on which that show is based with our good friends from History of Westeros. And that will include major spoilers for stuff that's going to probably appear in season two and maybe even season three and season four and however many seasons that show goes. So watch out and beware. Hello, my name is Jason Concepcion. Welcome to X-Ray Vision, the crooked podcast where we dive deep into your favorite shows, movies, comics, and pop culture. Joining me, of course, today is the great, powerful, super encyclopedia of comics history, ultra nerd, Godzilla writer, Rosie Knight. Rosie, how are you? Good. I'm happy to be here. I'm
3: ready to to talk about some sad Game of Thrones business. (laughs) Uh,
2: (laughs) First... On the previously on, we will be getting into lots of MCU news, Ant-Man and the Wasp Pantamania trailer, Guardians of the Galaxy Holiday special trailer, the uh, various DC shakeup news, including the hiring of James Gunn as the co-Kevin Feige of the DC (laughs) universe in the airlock. Of course, we're going to talk about the season finale of House of the Dragon. After that, we're going to give you the last round of Ask the Maester for season one of House of the Dragon. This is it, folks. In the hive mind, our good friends Aziz and Ashaya from the History of Westeros Pot are going to join us to talk uh, about House of the Dragon in a book-centric, spoiler-filled conversation. So this is for book readers. If you don't want to be spoiled on a bunch of stuff that's probably going to happen in seasons two, three, four of House of the Dragon, then uh, maybe skip this one. And of course, if you want to jump around, check out the show notes for the timestamps. First up, previously on. Okay, let's start with a newly released trailer for Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. Your thoughts, Rosie?
3: Wow. I was not expecting it to be like this. I was expecting a trailer. It's been a long time. But it is so different from anything they've done with Ant-Man and the Wasp. I will say the beginning of the trailer is in my lovely town of San Pedro where I live. That's what we saw them filming.
2: That's right. right.
3: Scott is looking happy. He's loving life as an Avenger. People are saying hi to him. Like, they think he's Spider-Man, but still. And then it's just like, that is very MCU-ish as we know it, but it just throws us into the quantum realm after Cassie creates a, a quantum satellite, which, to be honest, very silly idea. But... Yeah, You know, Scott's daughter, Cassie does that. They go in. And then it's just like this unreal Star Wars spy kid, super hard sci-fi. Very spy
2: kids.
3: (laughs) It kind of blew my mind. I did not expect them to go in this direction or for so much of the movie to actually be set in this really expanded version of the quantum realm.
2: I was left wondering, it feels as if... Obviously, Kang, Jonathan Majors, Kang the Conqueror, is in this. Looking he looks great. Great. It, I came away from the trailer feeling like, okay, he's here, but he might not be the big bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wonder what it is that Scott, Cassie, and Janet are gonna be fighting against because I. It does not seem like it's gonna be Kang. It seems actually that they're. Kind of interests are aligned and whatever it is that Scott helps Kang with mm-hmm. is going to be the thing that gets the ball rolling towards, you know, uh, the next, you know, the ultimate like showdown and the eventual Avengers movie when it does happen.
3: Yeah, I totally agree. From the beginning, what I've really wanted, because we knew from Loki that Jonathan would basically be playing multiple different versions of Kang, which makes sense as the nature of his character is that there are many different versions of Kang living through all different times and realities. I've always wanted it to be that he would meet a version of Kang who was an ally. I thought maybe it would be more like a version who is just in the normal world, who's a scientist, who's a very early version. But I like this idea that there's this established version of Kang who is going to try and ally himself with Ant-Man. You know, we see him call him Ant-Man. He recognizes who he is, what his powers are. He doesn't mistake him for a different Avenger. The big question, like you say, who is the threat? We know that basically the version of the quantum realm that we have in the MCU is a mixture of the quantum realm. And then uh, this thing called the Microverse, which came from these weird old 70s toy comics, the Micronauts, so they can't say that. But I wonder whether... What we see here is some version of Chronopolis, which is the this mm. kind of space where Kang lives in some of the comics where he can open portals to all different dimensions that he's conquering at once. I wonder if there's something where one of those portals, and, you know, it's always going to go back there. I'm not going to say X-Men, so be surprised. But I'm going to say Fantastic <laughs> uh, Four. We'll, it's we're going to say it eventually. We're going to say it eventually. But uh, yeah. it, it's Kang, so I'm going to say some kind of Negative Zone threat, some kind of Doctor Doom threat, some kind of more direct Fantastic Four threat. I also think there has been rumors going around, and this is very rumors, so no confirmation here, that one of the next Marvel special presentations will be about Silver Surfer. So I also wonder if we could see like a Galact... And if they do that, I would assume it would be about him before he became the Herald of Galactus. So, But if that's the case... Then in that case, you know, this would be about Norrin Rad. I wonder if they're going to introduce the Silver Surfer. That means maybe the bigger threat is someone like Galactus. You know, oh I would, gosh. I would love to see something like that. You know, and I like the idea of Kang being an ally first and a villain later because Jonathan Majors brings so much complexity to that performance. In Loki, he was just so brilliant. That's my favorite episode of Loki, is the the finale oh God, episode yes. with him and. I'm very excited to see where they go with this, especially because something I find very interesting about this setup is the idea that Janet Van Deen, you know, Michelle Pfeiffer icon, original founder, like one of the founders, leaders of the Avengers. I I love the idea that she knew that Kang was there and she knew that this wider version of the quantum realm That's existed. That's why she was so concerned about that. And she didn't tell them. The, yeah. That to me, kind yeah. of, that is very interesting. What does she know? How, why did she think it was safer for them to not be there. There's there's a lot of really interesting character work they can do here. And the fact that they're doing it in this kind of bonkers super sci-fi world where they're sort of traveling as nomads through the quantum realm is just so unexpected to me. Like I'm I'm really excited for it.
2: Uh the suit, the Kang suit looks amazing. Yeah. I had a crackpot. Th- I love thought. this. You better say it. I listen, this is not going to be right, but I a crackpot thought just because of the way his face looks and the and the way the mask looks. I do wonder, you mentioned the multiple versions of Kang and which one is Scott going to be interacting with, which one is going to be in this movie. I wonder if the suit is like some kind of quantum entanglement mm-hmm. suit where different versions of Kang can inhabit the suit at different times depending it. on need. Uh I I and I wonder if that's not a way they could do it where uh, he could he could be different versions I think it's of a Kang great idea. in this one suit. Yeah,
3: I think that's a brilliant idea. Also, it makes a lot of sense that if he had the technology to create something like that with Chronopolis, then he would have the technology to create a version of that in the suit where the suit is essentially a portal in itself. Also, I will say like the obvious big bad for a movie like this where we have the ally Kang would be like an Immortus. Yeah. Kang, you know, the, Kang is the villain, but Kang is an ally because there are many versions of Kang. So that would also be very interesting to see how they will play that. But I, I, I also didn't realize this was coming out in February. Maybe because time is yeah. moving so fast. So we don't even have to wait that long. Like I'm ready. You don't have
2: to wait that long. Uh, up next, the Guardians of the Galaxy Holiday Special trailer. Um, my immediate reaction is great. More Cosmo. More yeah, Cosmo Cosmo, the that's
3: the one, baby. That's the most thing that's I like the, the, the one, most baby. from Guardians of the Galaxy was the collector's collection, you know, seeing Cosmo, seeing, uh, Howard the Duck, obviously, who I hope is going to make his way into the main MCU once again. Now he's married to Darcy. Yeah, you know what? This is exactly what a Guardians of the Galaxy Christmas special should be. Mantis and Drax. They're going to cheer up Star Lord, who honestly is a whiny baby. So I don't know why they're bothered. But anyway, they're going to do it because they're good friends and they love him. And how are they going to do it? They're going to s- kidnap Kevin Bacon. Yes.
2: <laughs> My sense is like a like a one shot in comics, exactly. like the like the hol- like the Star Wars holiday special exactly. before That's it. That's what
3: it's named. This after, is going to be know? a
2: very fun thing. That will not impact the canon.
3: Yeah, especially now, the next news that we're gonna talk about, we can assume that this is gonna be very out of canon. And I love this idea that it's kind of like, it's like Marvel's What if Drax was Santa Claus or something like that? (laughs) You know, it's like he would be kidnapping people and causing Nightmare Before Christmas level troubles.
2: So, up next, uh, DC Films has announced that they have found their Kevin Feige and is, in fact, two people. It is writer-director James Gunn of the various Gardens of the Galaxy movie, but also Peacemaker and also Suicide Squad over at uh, Warner Brothers DC. And producer Peter Safran, they will lead the film, TV, and animation division as co-chairs and co-CEOs of DC Studios with Gunn focusing on the creative side and Safran more of the business and production side. So, you know, you would imagine that's wise, uh, considering that you know, putting a director, mm-hmm. not just a director, but like an active, working director who is like currently doing work on currently a currently doing stuff movie. Movie. <laughs> like, in 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 control of an entire studio. This is we've never really seen this before. This uh, is this is crazy. You know, I've seen numerous like posts online that are something like. Kevin Feige has created his own supervillain with James Gunn. (laughs) You know, obviously, a lot of work to do. A lot remains to be seen. It'll be fascinating to see what their, you know, what their slate of films Uh is. I would imagine it's going to be some it's going to be like two years before James's like influence is even felt on the screens. I would imagine Um, your thoughts.
3: So I think that. It's probably going to seem sooner because DC wants to feel like there's a shape. So we'll probably get some classic DC slash Marvel style announcement where you get the slate of movies and you're just like, half of these definitely aren't going to come out. But I think you're right. Two years seems realistic. It's a four year deal from what I understand. So I'm like, two years feels like they're really going to, it's hopefully going to go well so they can extend the deal and kind of do more with it. I really like this choice. Uh, Peter Safran and James Gunn have worked together for a long time. You know, um, it fits in with Zaslav's style of the kind of people that he wants to put in charge of things, (laughs) AKA, you know, white men. But two white guys. Like two white guys. Two for the price of one. Two for the price of one. Um, (laughs) But like the truth is that Safran's worked with Gunn for a long time. He was like his manager and he actually produced the DC movies that I like the most. Like, I, everyone knows I love I, Aquaman. I can't wait for the next Aquaman movie. I love Shazam. I think it's an absolute underrated gem. It's just, like, pure superhero magic. He uh, did Suicide Squad, which I adored, Peacemaker, which was a huge smash. Also worked on The Conjuring, which is the biggest horror franchise of all time. So he has the producing chops, and he has them at Warner Brothers. Yeah. And the good thing about Gun, like, the Suicide Squad really showed me in a way that I hadn't really seen before. And I'm such a huge fan of that movie. I think it's really radical and just great. But, like, I knew that he loves comics. He he loves comics. Yeah. And that's something, like, that Feige has that a lot of these other execs have not had, right? He loves comics. And not just that, he knows how to look into a catalog that spans 80 years and find unexpected characters to explore and unexpected stories to tell that is what the MCU was built on. I know it doesn't feel like it. I know Captain America and Iron Man feel like they were the biggest superheroes in the world. They were not it's at the time. not the case. And Gunn goes even deeper than that. You know, so he made a movie with Suicide Squad that's like one of the best superhero movies ever made. And it has Polka Dot Man in it. It has yeah. a legacy version of Ratcatcher, And the Ratcatcher storyline is unbelievable. It has so many unexpected characters. It has Starro, you know, it has these cosmic, strange characters brought into this really grounded world. I'm excited to see what this looks like in the long term. And if this is their 10-year plan, they got someone who's going to do something that's very different than Marvel, and that's what they need.
2: I to. agree. And I think having Saffron there, to your point, yes. is wise. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, on the creative side, there's a lot of work to do in kind of producing a cohesive shape and tone out of a lot of disparate kind of projects. And that is going to be a lot. And so you would imagine having Saffron there to kind of be the guardrails. It just seems wise. It'll be interesting to see what happens. The other
3: thing that I think is actually really key, which is something I've kind of been talking about, is like, you know what else James Gunn has? He has like an unreal Rolodex of talent who loves to work with him. Like, if you look at the people he works with and how they love to continue to work with him on different kinds of projects, he is bringing with him an immense amount of star power who would likely be very happy to do more things with him in whatever guise, wherever he ends up. And we're talking about a studio whose main focus is on, you know, making a Superman movie. I have my version of what that should be at DC, which is basically they should just do a Channing Tatum as Superman movie and make it as bright and sparkling as Rob's, you know, Batman movie was dark, and then you have the two of them meet. But I am not in charge. I'm not James Gunn, spoiler alert, guys. (laughs) But I'm very interested to see. They they have the man who who made a a Superman. What if Superman was a a horror killer, you know, with Brightburn? That's the man who's now in charge of DC Studios, along with Peter Safran. I find that very interesting.
2: Well, up next... Here it is, folks, the finale of House of the Dragon.
3: Did you know dragons are coming?
2: Election day is coming up fast, and you know what that means? Just T-shirts. No, it means voting, obviously. Get yourself and everyone around you pumped to go vote with merch from the Crooked Store. We've got merch to shout out voting as well as the most important issues from abortion rights to filibuster reform. Treat yourself to something that represents what you stand for. Like an I Voted sticker, you can put it in the washing machine. What? Get some gear and gear up for Election Day at Crooked.com slash store. We're stepping out of the airlock and onto the beautiful Beaches of Dragonstone to discuss the season finale of HBO's House of the Dragon, The Black Queen. Written by Ryan Condal, directed by Greg Yatanes. Um, what a uh, this! What a great episode, and also <laughs> it just made me sad. I, it made me sad uh, for various reasons. Many, uh, you know, chief among them, how hard Rhaenyra has tried to avert the very thing that is now happening.
3: This is the ultimate proof of what we said this whole season, which is at every point she's been giving everyone incredibly generous offers, thoughtful ideas, trying to bring peace. She's been living up to what her dad would have wanted. And we see that just torn apart in the most brutal way today. I am wearing all black morning clothes. And also because (laughs) I am now officially... In the black faction. I always thought Rhaenyra was right, but I was an Alison apologist. hashtag as are. I, I'm an apologist for her N- as me well. Me too. Like I see still adds into that. Like it's so I love, I know, I know it's controversial, and I know we'll talk about this, but I love the way that they subtly changed that big moment in this episode to add a little yeah. bit more to that, that sad, kind of tragic con- kind of context. We're gonna talk
2: about that and let's get into it. So we open on Dragonstone, this wonderful moment between Mother and son, Rhaenyra, is pregnant with her sixth child. Uh, if it's a girl, she shall be named Visenya. And she finds her son, Lucerus Luke, looking over Aegon's painted table. He is worried that, uh, you know, Lord Corlys is obviously still ailing, healing from his wounds on the stepstones. He might die. Driftmark might then pass to Luke. And Luke is like, I don't think I'm ready. I think I'm ready for this. And Rhaenyra... Uh, to, uh, really, quite affectingly, talks about how you know she didn't think she was ready. Also, when her father named her heir at fourteen years old, and now he is at about that same age and dealing with all those those issues. And she says, "In time, I came to understand that I had to earn my inheritance." Um, there's this really heartbreaking moment where he's like, "How did you?" Become so perfect, Mm -hmm. and she's like, "Oh, if you only knew." She's
3: like, (laughs) "Oh no, if you only knew." Oh, it's so such good stuff here, and just absolutely heartbreaking in the context of what's to come. There's so many great Rhaenyra Luke moments this episode.
2: And then uh, Sir Laurent Marbrand, one of the King's Guard, comes uh, and brings news that Princess Rhaenys has arrived and she really, really, really needs a meeting up right now. I wonder what
3: she wants to talk if, about.
2: <laughs> I wonder what it is. And of course, it is the tidings of the death of King Viserys and the crowning in the dragon pit of King Aegon II. And it, this news hits Rhaenyra like a physical blow. She goes into labor. She knows because, again, she's been through this. You know, five times by now, that this is one, it's way too early. The maesters are saying so. And then she can feel that this is not going to turn out well. Damon, meanwhile, is processing all of this. There's a great moment where he, like, spins Dark Sister. You know, he's got it in his hand, point that you know, in the scabbard, point down, like on the ground, like a cane almost. And he's like, spins it in his hand and then leans it up against the table. And he's like, Viserys has been slain. He's mm-hmm. obviously furious. They ask Rainice why. So, yeah, like obviously they were like, Well, well Rainese, they made you swear to Egon. She's like, I, they wanted me to, but I, I refused. And they ask her how she escaped. She tells them. And then Damon is naturally, for all of us, really yeah, he, serious he's, that Rainese didn't, yeah, Rainey's that, that didn't just take care of it right then. Why didn't you just take care of it right then? I think she gives like a, a An excellent answer. That war was not mine to begin.
3: Uh, It's so good. And it totally leans into like the great points that you were making. But I have to say, like, Rhaenys, this episode just absolutely delivers on every point. And you kind of you see that even if it was not a direct influence or a maternal relationship, a lot of what Rhaenyra learned was from the way that she saw Rhaenys behave. And this comes through in this way where this week and this episode Rhaenys becomes the ally to Rhaenyra that we always wanted her to be. And there is this understanding there between them that is so brilliant. And when she says that, that war is not mine to begin, there's just no questioning her. Damon can say what he wants. He can be as mad as he wants. But she's right.
2: And it also does something important, I think, which it gets underlined again and again and again throughout this episode, which is, Rhaenyra, you're the queen now.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: That's your mm-hmm. decision. Look at the way everybody is treating you over the course of this episode as they're looking to see is there any weakness here like their father, like Damon is challenging her. Who, will she stand up to this? She laid that decision at Rhaenyra's feet and you can hate it. You can disagree with it. You can be frustrated with it. I certainly am. But I – but the – I, you really do understand the logic. And I got to say like Rhaenys at this point, I think – maybe my favorite character in the show, I'm just, like, fascinated by her wisdom, the way she is... She, You know, she's got that, like, world weariness Mm -hmm. of someone who has been right for decades, and it is just now that people are like, you know what? You are right about that. yeah. And it's like, yeah, I've been saying this
3: for years. I love that. And also, it kind of is one of those funny moments where you feel like... She did this a lot, we talked about it, where they kind of know what you're thinking and they preempt you. They knew that we were all going to be like, well, Cersei would have burnt them. Cersei would have done this. But Rhaenys isn't Cersei, and that's actually what makes her a great leader. That's what makes her a great person. She's not going to make that decision that's going to end up costing the lives of everyone. And by doing that, she, at least for a a small modicum of time, inspires Rhaenyra to consider the idea of peace in the realm and and what that would take.
2: Yeah. Rhaenyra goes to uh, deliver... She's refusing the help of her midwives and her maester Gerardus. She is just like in this fury. It's it. The feeling is that let's just move past this delivery, so I can begin mm-hmm. the hard work of of trying to avert this war. Of course, the baby is stillborn and dies. It is an, yet another uh, hard to watch delivery scene. I, you know, it's it's a conversation I think worth having, which is, you know. Why make this decision to show it? I think you can come down on either side of it. The thing that I think about it is, besides the very trite, like, oh, it's in the books, like, you have to mm-hmm. put it in. Yeah, of course it's in the books. The, but uh, I find myself, like, interrogating why it is so easy for me to watch, like, any number of, like, deaths appear on screen mm-hmm. and it, it's hard to watch someone deliver a child. Yeah. You know, I don't have an answer for that. but I think that's you know, a like, good
3: thing to think about because we've talked, you know, a lot about representation in these shows and the way that House of the Dragon has done a really great job at changing the way that we see certain kinds of sexual violence, though that the way that they show birth is definitely very visceral. But something that, you know, was a big conversation around the original Game of Thrones is like, why can you not? see an erect penis on TV, but you can see someone get their head chopped off. What does that tell you about that part of somebody's body? And what does it tell you that to watch a birth is so much more unsettling for us than to see somebody being tortured or have their tongue cut out? I I really like that that's like a conversation, that the question it's making you think of. Because I think it's one of the biggest things about TV. You can turn on broadcast TV and see somebody yeah. gunning down a bunch of people but you can't see you know a, a nipple on some broadcast TV and you can't see you can never see you know a penis or, or other things it's really really interesting the ideas of what is explicit and what is not
2: While Renier is going through this Damon swings into action you can tell this is the moment that he has been waiting for for years he's, he's ready. ready to plan <laughs> he's ready he's like Man the watchtowers, sight the skies. Everybody's like, uh, you know, man your battle stations, all that. Uh, Rainice goes out to the beach, calls uh, Prince Jace and Luke to their mother's side. Uh, they they find her in the midst of giving birth. Um, she tells them the news: King Viser, your grandfather's dead. The throne is being usurped. Here's what's going on. Jace takes it. The prep, whatever they've been doing to prepare him he's, for this moment in these years. He's walking. He, it worked. He takes it really well. There was a really small moment on the beach right before this where, you know, he and, and Luke are sparring and Luke falls down. And it's that generational trauma again, passed down again where he, Jace is standing over Luke going, What was that? Mm-hmm. Like, and to the point where one of the Kingsguard is being like, hey, Let's maybe take it easy on him, like allow him to learn. But here again is this trauma and and violence being passed down, Jace asks, what are we doing? And Rhaenyra is like, listen, nothing happens unless I order it right now. OK, I just need to get past this. She's basically saying and just everybody stand down until I am ready to rule. Uh, and then uh, she's like, where's Damon? Jace is like, I will I'll go find him. OK. Uh, Rhaenyra wants Jace also to realize, hey, you're the heir now. Mm-hmm. OK, So many hopes are pinned on you. So, just be aware of that. Uh, Damon is with, you know, this this kind of like burgeoning black council that is like coming together that will soon coalesce around Rhaenyra. But like he's really uh, at the wheel right now, and he's sending. He's getting ready to send ravens. Uh, Word reaches Dragonstone that Lord Corlys is up, and he is sailing there. He'll be there shortly. Rhaenyra, you can hear her cries echoing through the castle. She's calling for Damon. and people are all around the table. Sir Marbrand, Lord Keltigar, they're looking at him. And Sir Marbrand speaks up and is like, hey, uh, are you going to um, – do you want us to – do you want to speak to the maesters and just see what's going on right there? And Damon gives him the iciest <laughs> stare like – don't question yeah, me right if now. If Damon
3: didn't need every night of the 30 that he had, you probably would have had your head chopped off just then for like making it That's seem right. like he needed to care about it. But he he needs every man.
2: Uh, Damon plans to fly to the Riverlands, talk to Grover Tully. Um, Jace comes up and he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, the queen says don't do anything until so she's back on her feet. And Damon, and now there's a really interesting push and pull here where... Damon is like send the ravens and Jace is like but the queen said not to send them and then of course the ravens do get sent because Damon you know you're not you're really it's going to be really hard to not follow Damon's orders right now yeah. and uh, and Damon is also telling Jace hey listen you better get your head in the game because you're going to need to be on a dragon patrolling the sky soon Jace follows Damon to a meeting with Sir Laurent Marbrand and Sir Stephen Darkland members of the King's Guard who are assigned to the queen and her family Uh, Damon gives them the opportunity to declare whether they are for the queen or whether they are traitors, essentially. And listen, if you declare for the queen and then you flip later, it's going to be very, very painful. Damon makes that very clear. If you declare for the greens right now, okay, that's fine, but I'll make it quick. I'll make it quick if you do it right now. Meanwhile, again, while this is happening, uh, Rhaenyra finally gives birth. The child is stillborn, and the queen prepares the child herself by on her own for the traditional Targaryen funeral rite. Sir Eric arrives as they're kiss. having the funeral. He has brought a crown. This is the crown of uh, King Jaehaerys and then later her father, King Viserys, which he smuggled out of King's Landing. Uh and he swears fealty before everybody to the queen. Damon places the crown on Rhaenyra's head and everybody bows before.
3: Yeah, her. and talking of push and pull, there's that great moment. Damon is looking at that crown, and he is looking he longingly does. for too long. <laughs> but he knows in that moment that the best move is to put it on Rhaenyra's head. But there is Absolutely. the moment where he thinks about it and he's well, he wants it. He
2: wants it no matter what. And I think and you, you see it over the course of this episode where Rhaenyra taking her responsibilities extremely seriously mm-hmm. feels that, listen, a lot of people are going to die. It is my duty to try as hard as I can to avert war if it's at all possible, whereas Damon is just like, no, we're fighting now. Mm-hmm, we go now. Mm-hmm. Why don't we go right now? Um, and now the planning begins in earnest. The hall of the painted table is turned into a council of war. We've got the black council now here. Uh, officially, we discover that Aegon's painted table lights up. Shocking! First time. It's shocking stuff. Shocking. I guess by the time done. we get to Stannis in mm. Game of Thrones, they had lost like the lighting. They they had lost like the piece. So they just like, didn't the know candles. you could just put some
3: candles to attach yeah, to it. I didn't know. <laughs>
2: You know, it's like finding, like, an 8-track, like, today, (laughs) 8-track player and being like, how do I Uh, even—what do I I even do with this thing? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Damon announces the Queen with all her Mm -hmm. full titles. There is a very interesting moment where everybody bows their head, but Rainice kind of doesn't. Yeah,
3: yeah, I mean, they— they rate everyone else kneels when Damon puts the crown on and Remy stays standing, but gives her like a smile. She's like, now
2: here is my take. She and Corliss have been such a team, even though Corliss. Has really thought like I'm running this mm-hmm. for a lot mm-hmm. of it, right? My take is. We're going to make this decision, Corliss and yeah. I as a family and I'm going to see what what he wants to do, and we will talk to each other, which we see later, before I officially, like, and then then we will declare together. But I'm not going to declare right now. No, I love
3: that. Also, I think as well it's like a sign of Rhaenyra's respect for Rhaenys and this kind of growing respect they have. Rhaenyra doesn't make her bow. Damon doesn't go to her with a sword. Rhaenys is watching over, and she's saying, I did this. If I didn't come to you and tell you what happened, this would not be happening for you.
2: That's a great point. There's there's that moment at that first meeting where she first arrives and tells them the news, um, Rayneese, where you know Damon is like very very hot mm-hmm. again that Rayneese didn't burn everybody, while Rhaenyra is like, hey, uh, well we you know. As we have been doing every night, we will pray for Lord Corlys's return to health. We have been, you know, come on. Like, Damon has not been praying every night for anything. (laughs) For anyone.
3: He knows what he wants.
2: (laughs) But it shows you the diplop, like, how Rhaenyra has really grown into a leader and she understands the weight of it. It is very notable in this first meeting of the Black Council that Queen Rhaenyra, immediately includes Baelan yes, in the council immediately moment. has them right around the table. That is a huge nod to their importance and also an example to, you know, her burgeoning government about what kind of ruler mm-hmm. she is going to be. Um, and then Damon gives this the state of war, which is things on Dragonstone are OK, but all in all, not really great. They have House Celtigar. They have the Stauntons. They have House Massey. Darkland, Baramon, um, they are with the queen. Rhaenyra is like, I think we can count on the veil. They were, that's my mother's people. Maester Gerardus thinks that the Riverlands are probably keen as well. Ravens are going to Lord Grover Tully, we discover. And Rhaenyra is like, wait a second. I said nothing mm-hmm. was supposed to happen. So there's a little bit of a, of a look between those two. Um, and then Damon says, listen, I'm going to go to Riverrun personally. Uh, uh, and like, of course, it was my idea to send the Ravens against your express wishes. Um, and then there's some discussion of, OK, where do storms end? And Winterfell fall in this. Winterfell, it is believed the Starks will never go against never break anything an they've pledged to. They'll never break an oath. It doesn't matter how many years it's been. It doesn't matter who did it. They will stay true to what they said. Uh, and the Queen also thinks that Lord Boros, son of uh, the late now Lord Boromund Baratheon, uh, may need some reminding. And that is an understatement. <laughs> um, the news from Driftmark is that Corliss is coming. And then, of course, the Lannisters are never going to turn never going to turn black. They are going to stay green, uh, which is why Damon believes, again, that the Riverlands are so important. His plan is we seize Hall. Right, house of the, you know, the seat of Lord Laris Strong. So, in a stroke, we weaken one of the queen's most important supporters and we cut the, the realm in half. Um, they're discussing all of this again. And Lord Bartimus Celtigar of Claw Isle, who, by the way, is also the, the Celtigar is also descended from the blood of old Valeria, um, though. No one remembers this, and I imagine <laughs> that they would be like, hey, remember us, we're Valerian too. Don't forget us. Um, is like, hey, before we get into all of this planning, we have the dragons, do we not? Like, we we have mm-hmm. the advantage here. Uh Damon gives a quick count. The Greens have three adult dragons, Vagar, Sunfire, and Dreamfire, written by Aemond, uh, Aegon the Elder, the King, and Helena plus Daron the Daring who is off screen in Old Towns to Sarion, but that's a juvenile dragon. Meanwhile the blacks have Cerax, Caraxes, and Melis, plus Vermax, Arax, and Tyraxes. Also Moondancer, Sea Smoke, who's unclaimed right now, former formerly uh Lenor Valerian's Dragon, plus the the amounts of Old King Jaharis and Queen Alisane, uh, Vermithor and Silverwing, who are on uh Dragonstone and the Dragon Mount right now, plus three wild dragons. So that is 13 according to Damon, uh, against four dragons, only three of which are adults, plus Damon is like, I got a lot of eggs incubating. <laughs> um so Damon is like, yeah, let's let's attack. The time now is to attack. We can have the Greens heads on spikes in two weeks or something like that before they can really debate this too much. It's clear also that Rhaenyra doesn't she's not she's like, listen, we're not just like plunging into war right now before this debate can really take shape. Sir Eric brings word that there is a galley on the way flying the banner of King Aegon Otto High Hightower is here. Um, Damon. The Queen's Guard, other men-at-arms go to meet Otto, who is backed by several members of the King's Guard and other knights. Otto brings terms from Queen Alicent. He's been directed by Alison to deliver terms only to Rhaenyra, and so Rhaenyra appears on Dragonback, landing behind Otto just as she did 20 years previously in the Crisis of the Egg. And it is a really incredible mirror image yeah. moment. There's some jousting about, about who— is and isn't a traitor. Rhaenyra's like, I'm the queen. Otto keeps calling Ado her a princess, like no, like
3: no matter how yeah. many times she stops him. I mean, you would think Otto would have learned his lesson at this point about Dragonstone and Rhaenyra, but he has not. So, you know,
2: let that the chips fall where they may. And you have to say, certainly with, you would imagine, Alicent's influence, Aegon, has offered some really generous terms. Yeah, these are just Allison's if,
3: terms. Let's be real.
2: Like that terms. But I, I agree with Allison's you. I terms. think these are Allison's terms, obviously. But obviously, they come in in King Eagon's name. If Rhaenyra bends the knee, Rhaenyra will be confirmed in Dragonstone in perpetuity. Okay, that's safe. Which that will pass to her, and they call her sons with lenor aka. Harwin Strong, uh, <coughs> her, true bu- who tr- her true born sons. Um, Jaehaerys will get uh, Driftmark and all the holdings of House Valerion. Viserys and Egon will be given places of high honor at court, cupbearer, squire to the king, royal pardons for all the black supporters. And, uh, th- it, you know, honestly, it is a good deal. Um, th- the question then becomes do you trust the Greens? To honor their side mm-hmm. of it. Certainly, Damon doesn't. He's like, never gonna happen. What about this? We kill you all. <laughs> um, Otto points out that all the symbols of legitimacy belong to Aegon, right? Otto overreaches a little bit by saying, hey, and also how stark Tully and Baratheon they uh you know, I think they're leaning to us. He he, <laughs> they love he makes it clear that they haven't like, he yeah. makes it clear that they haven't really decided, but he's basically counting it against them. This infuriates the Queen Rhaenyra. she rips the pin from I Otto's lapel, throws it into the ocean. Um, and then Otto signals Grand Maester Orwell, who delivers a note to Rhaenyra and is the page from the book that she and Alicent were studying all those years ago in the Godswood. Um, It is, you know, the history of Nymeria um, and, and tears well up into Rhaenyra's eyes. And I have to say, I've seen a reading of this online where people are like, Alicent isn't trying to connect with Rhaenyra. She's saying, you know, because like the history of Nymeria is that she took the ships and they fled from Essos made this kind of circuitous, circuitous journey, eventually landing in Dorne. She's not saying take the deal. She's saying run. She's saying mm. flee. I, I actually don't look at it that way. Because like the end of the Nymeria story is Nymeria finds a home. She's not running anymore. Mm-hmm. She burns the ships on the beach so that they're to as a symbol to her people, like, we're not going anywhere. We're this is it. Um I think she was just trying to connect. Yeah. With her friend in, in the, like saying, hey, your friend is still here. These are my terms to your point. Like yeah. uh, I, I you have a you have a supporter and a friend on mm-hmm. this side. It is me. I will be the guarantor of your safety yep. and your family's safety in this deal.
3: Yeah. And that's from that moment. You know, those those were the moments when they were the people who were closest to each other in their lives. You know, this is from the scene where they're laying on each other. Yeah. They are their only companion within the walls. I I like I think your reading is the reading that I saw when I when I first watched it. And then on concurrent rewatches, I just think, yeah, I just think you can see Otto, Reese does a great job. He's kind of pissed that he had to bring it. He, like, doesn't, he, doesn't, want, he doesn't want to hand it over. Hand it yeah. over. He, he doesn't want to reconnect them because he already had that moment of fear at the dinner table, and he saw them yeah. holding hands and and reconnecting. So, yeah, I, I love that moment, and it just makes everything that's going to come so much more tragic.
2: Blades come out now because Damon is like, "Fuck this shit! What about what about this, uh, Sir Eric? Go over there, grab Otto, bring him to me, and then I'm gonna fucking chop his head off."
3: <laughs> He's like, when "I want a- the pleasure, baby."
2: I want to do it. I've been waiting (laughs) 20 years to do it. Rhaenyra shuts it all down. She says, King's Landing will have my answer on the morrow. We're back at the Black Council Hall. Daemon, again, is pointing out that we have the horses. We have the dragons. We can end this tonight if we wanted to. Um, Rhaenyra is like, uh, you know, my father told me the histories, and I'm well aware of them. When dragons flew to war, everything burned. I do not wish to rule over a kingdom of ash and bone. And Damon is fucking irate. He's like, listen, you're trying to avert war? They declared war. They have already declared war. So what are you going to do? Rhaenyra is like, okay, we can't have this conversation in front of everybody Mm -hmm. because we can't have fractures at the top. Clear the room. She is like gonna pull rank she's here is the moment where she's she is in her mind she's sharing Egon's prophecy with somebody who knows yeah about yeah it she and says saying, to him
3: you know we yeah. have a bigger mission like you know she says you know little does she know he does not know
2: she is right in her mind this is this is to remind him hey Remember what we're doing here. Like, remember our greater the greater mission that we we have to keep to. And uh, Damon reacts violently and terribly. He grabs her around the throat, and it's very very clear that he did not know about this. Mm-mm. And and whatever is going through his mind and in, in that moment, I don't want to make any excuses for him because this is fucking horrendous. And I don't honestly, if Rhaenyra wanted to, and if and yeah. if it wouldn't weaken her. If Eric in had wartime. been in there, he probably would have chopped oh, yeah. his head then straight it's, off. Then it's like, like it, it's done, hundred percent. And the, the the issue is, she fucking needs Damon right yep. now. She needs him. He's a dragon rider. He is. He's been to war. You know, she needs. him. We know so- as well.
3: Like Allison has her insane. Psychopathic ally in Laris Strong and the in Kristen Cole and these men who will just murder people for her. So we know, in a dramatic irony sense, that Rhaenyra also needs her like violent wild card. Yeah, she just needs it to not be directed towards her. But I I love that moment. Like Emma Darcy sells it so well when Rhaenyra like clocks that Daemon didn't know, and she just laughs yeah. in his face. She just yeah, like she's like you didn't know. And I'm just like, well, I well, love you. This is so good. <laughs>
2: uh, and then Damon says something that is worth thinking about. Certainly dreams didn't make us kings. Dragons didn't. He leaves. Corliss wakes up to find his wife at his bedside. She is just pissed at him for abandoning the family to the Stepstones time and time again when, when she needed him, when the family needed him. Now their children are dead. She gives him the latest news from the capital, Viserys, the death of Viserys, the usurpation of of Aegon. Uh, Oh, also your brother is dead. What? Uh, Corlys is shocked and amazed at this, but also recognizes in his brother's actions the fact that he openly called Rhaenyra's children bastards in the presence of the king. He recognizes the same kind of ambition that has driven him, and mm-hmm. he's chastened now. He's like, listen, that's it. We're done, okay? We're done. We've lost both of our children. We've got our grandkids. Let's retire to Driftmark and just sit this one out and enjoy our grandkids. But, of course, Rainey's like, you know, lets him know that's it's really not an option, okay? Because your grandchildren are going to be in in harm's way. If Egon is king, they will never be safe. Bela, Reyna, Jace, Luke, Joffrey, they are gonna be in constant danger. Corliss joins the Black Council and he's looking shaky on that cane. Mm-hmm. Uh, Damon, conspicuously absent. Uh, you know, uh, the Queen makes some excuses for him. Corliss looks over the situation map on the table and he says, you know, this doesn't look great. This doesn't look like a lot of forces, really, to seize Westeros. And, uh, you know, Rhaenyra is like, well, we're hoping also for the Riverlands and for the Baratheons and, uh, you know, the Arryns. And Corliss says, hope is the fool's ally and then plays very, very coy, but then eventually promises the strength of his house and his fleets to the queen's cause. And it is a huge, huge, huge fucking win. Because at this point, with more dragons and the bigger fleet, they have the skies and the sea. It's going to take some time to get an army together. But this is this is huge. Yeah. And it gives them some leverage if, as she surely does, Rhaenyra wants to try and negotiate a piece to this.
3: Yeah. And I think something that I really love about this moment is like. Really, again, it shows Rhaenys' power. We know that really Corlys is probably going to say yes, but the thing that makes him make the final choice is he sees Baylor and he sees Reyna and he sees them standing with Luke and Jace and he kind of realizes like, well, if I want my family to be okay, this is my family. My family is at the Black Council. My family is yeah. here. So it's that, again, that character-driven emotional storytelling that has made this season so powerful and that's the thing that that tips him over the edge.
2: And Corlys gives some good news, too, which is the status of the Stepstones are they are fully under his control, meaning that from that strong point, the black faction can strangle the gullet and the narrow sea. Uh, they put it under blockade, stop all shipping and supplies into the capital if they so wish. The queen, of course, it uh, still needs the great houses to get in line. They, they've decided the Lannisters are off the table, but Winterfell, the Vale, Storm's End— Need to be contacted and they need to see where their allegiances lie. Jay steps up and says, Hey, um, don't send Ravens, send us. What stronger <laughs> message could there be than Princes on Dragonback? Maybe Jay. Good idea? Bad idea? Well, I'll let you decide. <laughs> Uh, Jace will head to the Eyrie and then off to Winterfell. Luke will go to Storm's End. Makes sense. It's the the closest, right? It's like very short flight over there. got a baby dragon. Got a baby dragon. It's a quick kind of jaunt and then jaunt back. Rhaenyra makes them promise, you're going in peace. You're not going as warriors. You're going as messengers only. And honestly, all things being equal— Usually that would have been enough to protect them. Mm-hmm. And I think in any other kind of situation, like if you take dragons out of it, yes. as we'll see, yes. I think that might have protected them. Um, of course, it doesn't uh, quite go that way. Rhaenyra can see that Luke is scared to go. And she reminds him that, hey, listen, the Baratheans are blood. They they first, you know, we'll get into this more and ask the maester. But the Baratheans, the only reason the Baratheans are high lords of any place is because the Targaryens put them there that mm-hmm. Oris baratheon back in the day that was aegon the conqueror's like best friend maybe more than that you know but like as the history say they were very 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 close and uh, and aegon put him you know on the seat at storm's end so hey listen don't worry about it their blood we're, you know boris's ego will be stroked by the fact that a prince has arrived uh, surely the other side will not have thought of something like that. Like we're the only ones who would think of sending a prince on dragon back. So don't worry about it. It'll be great for Max Arax and Moondancer fly off. Damon goes to the dragon mount. He is singing uh, a Valerian lullaby, uh, and he goes and I don't think you could say claims, but it seems like he's trying to woo. Woo makes contact with Vermathor who is, you know, again, the the, uh, the former dragon of old King Jaharis, and certainly the second largest, second oldest dragon currently alive, second only to Vagar, which is huge. But still, Vermithor and Silverwing, huge dragons and big gets for the black faction. Luke arrives at Storm's End. It is, of course, storming. And bad news, Vagar is there. You'd think at that point you'd leave. I would have just left. I would have just left. Please. Ah, I'm out. I think I also out. like it. You know, it's hard.
3: Like in this show, right? We've seen the dragons a certain extent, but this is the first time you realize how big Vagar is. Vagar looks as big as Storm's End. Vagar yes. is huge. Vagar is looming out of the clouds. It is just a just leave, babe. Your mom will just be more leave. happy that you go home. You don't need but, them that much.
2: Considering how nervous Luke has been since we've known him. Mm-hmm. And certainly over the course of this episode, his anxiety about inheriting an Driftmark, about this mission in particular, about his own place in the world. It is stirring to watch the courageousness with which he goes forth. He figures, OK, well, I'm going to do it. He goes in, delivers the uh, the message to Lord Boros, who, by the way, is, can't read. No, Lord Boros cannot, cannot read. read. Needs <laughs> the maester. Cannot read. Is described in the in the books as, quote, Never a man of words. <laughs> <laughs> so um, uh, Lord Boros has to have his maester read the deal that is offered to him, uh, which is. Remember your you know, vow, fair, bitch. <laughs> yeah, like fair play, to, for, fair play to, to Lord Baratheon, not apparently as rich as the one that uh, mm-hmm. King Aegon has offered, which is a betrothal. Yeah, he's one, one of was his daughters. A marriage to one of his daughters. It was like, Yeah.
3: You you owe you you made an oath, come to it, and Amon, you know, has gone to deliver this message of a marriage proposal. Luke. Yeah, but
2: and so you've come with no marriage yeah, proposal. And Luke Where's is like well, I'm proposal? not free to
3: marry. You know, again, this is the problem when you send like a 12-year-old, could have just lied, could have been like, Yeah, sure, marry me. Like decide side with us, and then you just give him a different
2: lord when you get back. There. I, I, and also I- I, you know, I think it was unwise to send Luke, but I understand, like, you know, blue sky thinking. I understand the thought behind Me it. Too. that makes sense I, I I do think it was unwise, considering the context. I also think we needed to prepare Luke yeah. for things that might have happened. you know what if Damon the would have got been there a, first also
3: Damon would have been like a great person to send for this specific. Yeah. Situation. Why not
2: send Damon? Is a, is a that's the biggest. Question, I get it. Right? I guess. I guess you're thinking if they attack, we need somebody here who's ready for war. Okay, I get that. It's not. It's At the not same far. time, it's
3: not far. It's not <laughs> far. At
2: the same time, it's like it, it. It does not take. It shouldn't be like genius level planning to go. Okay, well, what if the Greens made contact first? Mm-hmm. Like, what is they our had
3: enough time pitch? to make a yeah. new. They made new flags for the ships with a green Targaryen dragon. They have been planning for a long time. You can't May just do that flag- overnight. <laughs> like it is, yeah, this was a terrible plan. I hate to see it. I understand this is I the thing. I hate to see it. This is a good idea in theory. Bad execution. This is the thing I think that is really key to this is that Rhaenyra overestimates her children because let's be real.
2: Yeah, I think at that's 10 right. 10
3: and 4, Rhaenyra was a badass who went and ended the, you know, the crisis of the egg. Rhaenyra is a 14-year-old flying around on Dragonback, stopping wars from happening. And she, when Jace steps up and says, send That's a us, great point. she sees that in them and like what she wants for them, this kind of logical strength where you can go yeah. and you know the right thing to say. And you, But they don't. That's not the way that they've been raised. That's not the, they never had that full belief of their family behind them because of the controversy around like their parentage and, That's just not who Luke is. Luke is just a sweet baby.
2: Yeah, very, very sweet boy. That is such a great point. Of course, Rhaenyra is going to think, yeah, I did shit like this when I was 14, 15. Yeah, you you can handle this. I did it. Um, Unfortunately, no. Uh, Eamon is mocking Luke the whole time. He's like, I want... hey you're going to have to cut your eye out by the way to get out of here he he, he shows the sapphire that he keeps in the eye socket that is of his He throws a knife across the hall lord boros won't let anything happen in the hall but of course like he doesn't control the skies and what happens outside uh luke
3: he's going to come to regret
2: that gets on, he gets on Arax, and is and and you can tell both the rider and the dragon are nervous and he's trying to calm the dragon down like listen let's just get out of here a chase ensues uh Luke gets away. Luke gets away on Arax. Like the dragon is much smaller. They fly down into a canyon. Vagar can't fit down there. They get away. Um, Unwisely. And it's unclear. I think this is an Arax. I think this is the. I think this is Arax's decision. Arax makes the very, very unwise decision to, you know, belch a little bit of flame. I think he's scared. That's the way I read
3: it. It's kind of like he's just, it's like a body instinct, like a muscle memory. So well, small. I think that
2: I, I think that I think that the dragons want war much mm. like Damon does, and I think I like that, that the dragons are just ready to fight. Yeah, and I think everybody just as there's been so much underestimating going on, as you said, like Rhaenyra overestimating her her sons. I think there's been some underestimating of dragons as creatures with their own decision-making their own process. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. I think this
3: this is what I love about this episode, like, as much as it was so hard to watch. I love how well we can now go back, and I was going back and watching earlier episodes, and see the times when Viserys was like, we never should have created dragons. Dragons are a mistake. Yeah, he, dragons he are terrifying. I think Paddy did an interview where he basically said to Viserys it felt like he was riding a nuclear bomb. He knew that it was this weapon of mass destruction, and it terrified him. And he was the only one who didn't underestimate the dragons. And that comes in just to a head in the most horrific way in this season. Yeah.
2: I mean, Viserys says earlier in the season, it's an illusion that we control them. Mm -hmm. And here you see it. So Arax does this attack, Aimond. Is tr- he can feel Vagar going to respond, and is trying to call Vagar off. Like, don't, don't, don't! He's no, screaming, no, 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 no! Don't serve me! Don't do this! But of course, Vagar doesn't listen, and in one mighty chomp, kills Arax, kills Luke. Poor babies, they are dead. They pieces of dragon and, and young boy are falling into the sea. Uh, we go back to Dragonstone where, Rhaenyra is still at the table. And Damon comes up to deliver the news, and we see her turn around, and you could see on her face that it's done. whatever, whatever, whatever off ramps there were, we are past that yep. now. Now it is time to fully go to war. She is absolutely furious. Yeah. It's a chilling moment.
3: Yeah, we get the two face, the two facial performances from Emma Darcy as Renira and the kid who plays Amond. When he realizes what has happened and he has that that look on his face. Where he's basically like, What do I admit I'm a Kinslayer or do I admit that I can't control my dragon? And oh shit, I just started a war. There's like so much that goes over his face and he's just so horrified. And I found that to be a very powerful choice. Because the truth is, well, these kids have not ever been taught the realities of war. Like to them, it's this yep. horrible, trolling, bullshit game. But that's not, that's not what it is. Like, did people die? If you threaten to kill someone, they can die, you know. And Amond is just having that realization just then that he killed his cousin, his companion, someone he grew up with.
2: His nephew. Oh, his nephew he will yeah. absolutely, he will absolutely wear the moniker of a Kinslayer that will, he knows that that will happen now. And I mean, to your point, we had just gotten talking, done talking about how Rhaenys, though it was obviously a frustrating decision for a lot of people, declined to start a war that was not mm-hmm. hers to start. Eamon just started, just started a started war it. that was not his to start. He, that was not his place to do that, yeah. to to go out and immediately fire the first shot in the most what is Bruce, going to be a devastating impression. in a devastating civil war and kill a messenger too, like not who was not it's like not he says this is not self he defense. was in a misery he was
3: not there as yeah. a warrior that is a it. it's very well done because boris even says it like you can't do that he came as an emissary yeah there is a certain amount of rules and etiquette that Amund has broken here that go even beyond, you know, usurping. This is about the next step when you're trying to navigate power. And he just absolutely decimated it, any chance of any kind of peaceful ending. And and we see and that. He with Rha- oh, he knows it. And then we see it in it, Rhaenyra's face. It's done. Like it's over.
2: The other, uh, the other thing that really strikes me is as we watched Rhaenyra struggle so mightily to avert this war is that and Alicent, too, you know, in the Uh previous episode in her own way. And I think very sincerely trying to slow down this machinery that is like sprung into motion is that at this point, it's kind of out of their hands, like all of these warriors around Alicent and Rhaenyra want to fight. They want to do it. Damon wants to fight. Jace has been preparing for this whole life. Otto has been waiting to kill Rhaenyra and her entire family. Whatever these two want to do, the moment when they could have stopped it is gone because it's just out of their hands. It's out of their hands. And not only that, I think Allison. you know, we, we said last week, Allison will regret, I think, placing a crown on Aegon's uh-huh. head and the, and the loss of agency and influence she has, um, I think after—I think the last moment she had to have any influence over Aegon, over the Green Council, ended with those very, very generous terms— I agree. You know, from her perspective, that were offered, that ended with the death of of Lucerus Valerian. Yeah. I think that is— she will realize now that she doesn't have much say in anything, I think.
3: Yeah, I think so too. And I think it's not just going to be Egon that she's lost control of, but also Eamon. Because for Eamon to survive this, he is going to have to... I think that, and as we know from like the history books, I think he's essentially going to have to act like it was something he did out of choice. And that's yeah. going to pit him against Alison and pit him against Rhaenyra in an incredibly brutal way where the truth is we know it was just like a very sad mistake of an idiotic
2: teenager. It was very, man, it was very, very sad, but I can't wait wait for season two. Up next, more House of the Dragon and Ask the Maester.
0: People think the new fresh fragrances from Glade are fresher than fresh, like artist Priscilla.
2: This smells like houses in the Hampton Champagne toast down in Brazil. Smells like anything you think could happen, probably will. Explore the new Glade Fresh collection today. To celebrate the last round of Ask the Maester, we have emerged from the citadel. To answer your questions, Jamie asks:
3: Early in Game of Thrones, Jorah tells Danny that the people of Westeros don't really care who sits the throne. Do common people care about Aegon versus Rhaenyra?
2: I think that that is a a, a good perspective. And honestly, no, you know, like if we use. You know, medieval culture, European medieval culture, like as a kind of guide here, national identity was not really a thing. And moreover, you know, the small folk are worried about tilling their crops, working as craftspeople whether this person is their lord or that person is their lord or this person is their king or queen their lives stay mm-hmm. the same the income inequality is like an unimaginable gulf there is no upward mobility Mm-mm. their position will never change no the matter who's is is on charge. the neck
3: no matter who wears the, it
2: the boot is there and it is very strongly on their neck and what they care about is who is which one of these people is going to make my life Actively worse, mm-hmm. and in that sense, that's really the only way they care. They they truly are fearful of the people who rule over them, and just looking to live life as quietly and safely as possible.
3: Taryn asks, "What was Damon singing?"
2: Uh, Damon was singing a uh, a Valerian lullaby titled, and I'm not going to be able to pronounce this correctly, but Haros Bartosi. Um, which translates in English with three heads, words by uh, Ty Meckel uh, and David J. Peterson, who is the linguist who has designed mm-hmm. all the languages in Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon. And um, the lyrics... Translated in English are fire breather winged leader, but two heads to a third sing from my voice. The fires have spoken and the price has been paid with blood magic (gasps) with words of flame with clear eyes to bind the three to you I sing as one we gather and with three heads we shall fly as we were destined beautifully freely. Okay,
3: so I need to say something then after that. Yeah, Um, I didn't know those were the lyrics. I got a message from one of our listeners, Whitney Jane, who's who. Told me a theory that just blew my mind, which was the idea that the death of Visenya could have been a blood sacrifice to allow Damon to have two dragons. And with the lyrics to this song and the idea of the three-headed dragon, is do you think there's a possibility that that is the case? Because I, I had no idea that that's what the lyrics meant, but I Whoa. yeah, I thought oh. that was just so wild.
2: That is very interesting, and I will need to process it. <laughs> but you know, blood magic was part of Old Valyria, certainly was part of the kind of the magical, the culture of magic, as, you know, Viserys mentioned himself. There are rumors that, like, in other parts of Essos, like Kohorik, as they were trying to create their own version of Valyrian steel, a lot of the experiments that they were doing were with blood sacrifices to create this, like, magic metal similar to Valyrian steel. So I would not... I would. I think that's a very interesting theory. That's all. I'll. I think that's a lot to think about. That's a really interesting one. Um,
3: okay. okay, let's do it. Wow, that is that a, a mind blowing right? one. Yeah. Okay, so we got some Valerian steel questions. Yes. How strong is Valerian steel? How does it compare to Beskar, Adamantium, Vibranium? Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> You're that's the great. man to ask. And where? Uh, yeah. And then that was Ben. And then James asks, where did everyone get their Valerian steel swords?
2: Um, Valerian steel is. It's very comparable to Beskar and Adamantium. Uh, I'll get to that in a second. It is, you know, lighter than regular crucible steel and is much, much, much stronger. Basically, indestructible once it's forged and hammered and folded into shape. The blades are said to never lose their edge. These are the weapons that are around right now. Are hundreds you know, 300 years old, something like that, some 400-ish years old. And the fact that they never need to be sharpened tells you that they're essentially indestructible, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Very similar to adamantium in that way. Adamantium also, once the molten metal cools, indestructible. Um, Now, the technology for creating valerian steel has, of course, been lost, but there are very highly skilled artisans in Cahoric who I guess know certain spells that allow them to rework the metal. And, you know, we saw that in Game of Thrones when Tywin Lannister hired Tobomot uh, from Essos, although I don't think they say his name. They may say his name in the episode. To melt down the Stark uh, family sword ice into two swords, that was made possible because, again, those uh, uh, Tobomot knows certain spells Mm. and knows how to do that. Now, that also... Those secrets in Cahoric, the secrets of reworking Valerian steel are tightly, tightly, tightly guarded. A maester went over there to kind of study them and he was like publicly whipped several times because he was like getting too close to the secret. Um, Vibranium is significantly different in that it has that unique property of of absorbing and storing energy. Kinetic energy in particular, and that it is then able to like release it. Also, in the movie version, you see that uh, you know it's just in everything. It's in mm-hmm. the in, in Wakanda in particular. It's in the plants. It's in the organic matter, and that this ha- is also forms the basis for their very advanced technology. I would imagine that vibranium is in Wakandan, uh, you know, computer chips, etc., et and that it has some sort of special properties. Of course, you know, Valerian seal doesn't work that way. Um, also, vibranium and adamantium, different than uh, valerian steel. In that, there are several versions of both of those yes. metals, right? There's the Wakandan vibranium. There's the Savage Land vibranium. And there's different versions. Adamantium, there's several versions, not to mention the multiversal versions of those. So it's different. Um, how did they get into Westeros? Uh there had been contact and trade relationships between the kingdoms of Westeros and old Valeria before the Doom. Dragonstone was the entry point for this, the westernmost outpost of the Valerian Freehold. Um, we don't exactly know when the blades started coming in, but based on clues from the books, you can date it to – like uh, a couple of 100 years before the doom which was 114 years before Aegon's conquest the the clues are that in like just for example in Game of Thrones heart's bane which is um The Tarly family sword is mentioned as being, quote, nearly 500 years old. And then in Kat's chapter of Game of Thrones, she's uh, watching, you know, Ned in the Godswood clean off ice after having decapitated the the guy who fled from uh, the Night's Watch. And she says that ice is, quote, said to be 400 years old. Mm. So using that as a window and then counting back, you can say, you know— approximately 314 B.C., something like that. A uh, uh, Bright Roar, which was the Lannister family sword that got lost um, because some loony <laughs> Lannister decided to sail off into the Sunset Sea with it, uh, came into their possession like 100 years before the Doom. So let's call it about 200 years before the Doom that that stuff started to come in.
3: Okay, Wit asks... A good, good fun question here. How common was incest in Old Valeria?
2: We don't know. Um, but o- Old Valeria was an oligarchy, meaning that like 30 or so dragon riding families uh, basically ruled the city. So you can think about it as the Roman Republic, you know, with senators and consuls and stuff like that. No actual like figurehead leader, leader, um, and all these people kind of like jostling for position, my guess would be incest would happen, of course, because, again, that dragon riding blood, you want to keep it safe, but that there would also be significant intermarriage between those families mm-hmm. to the point that I'm sure they were all cousins At a, yeah. you know, by the point that doom happened, like they were all related somehow. So I guess you could say probably a lot of incest, depending on how how you think of cousins in terms of (laughs) incest.
3: Okay. Main asks, please connect the family tree dots from Viserys to Daenerys. So
2: this is... uh, There are some really great family trees online and this is really interesting. So if we start with um, Viserys, uh, Viserys' daughter is Rhaenyra, Uh, then now, spoilers, semi-spoilers here, okay? Rhaenyra's... There we've got Egon right as king right now, concurrent with Rhaenyra, and there's some uh, controversy over who's going to rule. But later on, spoiler, spoiler, spoiler! Don't listen to this if you don't want to know. Uh, Egon the Third, aka Egon the Younger, uh, goes and becomes king. You can start listening now. I don't. Uh, if if you didn't listen, then you can start listening now. He then has. Uh, a son named uh Baylor um, and Daron. Daron then becomes king, he dies during the conquest of Dorne, he's uh, uh, followed by Balor, uh, and then Aegon IV succeeds after Balor. So those are all the grandsons of Queen Rhaenyra, the great grandchildren of Viserys. Aegon IV then has a son named Daron II. Uh, Daron the 2nd then has a, a, a son named Makar, who becomes king Makar uh, then has uh, several very very interesting sons including Aemon aka Maester Aemon Targaryen and then the eventual king Aegon aka Aegon the 5th Aegon the 5th then has a son named Jaharis, who's Jaehaerys II. Jaehaerys II then has a son named Ares, who becomes Ares II, a.k.a. the Mad King. Ares then has a bunch of children, including Daenerys Targaryen. So if we go from Viserys, that is like the eighth great-grandchild. Daenerys mm. is the great, 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 Great granddaughter of King Viserys. So there you have it.
3: Okay, Miriam asks, I've been thinking about the saying, every time a Targaryen is born, the gods toss a coin. Does this come up in Fire and Blood at all?
2: Um, It, it, it doesn't. That was a quote attributed by Barristan Selmy to King Jaehaerys II, the father of the Mad King, King Aerys. This is when Barristan is explaining to Daenerys you know, th- how her father was actually kind of insane. And the coin flip metaphor is is pretty unfair. There's no doubt that because of rampant incest and, of course, the way immense wealth and power warps a person's moral compass, that the Targaryens were really eccentric. Um, but I think only a handful of them were people that you could truly say were mad. OK, Um uh, usually, they include King Baylor, K. Okay, Baylor the Blessed, who was just an extreme and fervent follower of the faith of the Seven. He burned books, he like fucking crawled to Dorne on his hands and knees. He was, he was. Now, I think other people would say maybe he was just very, very devout, but certainly that's so. Again, there is one that, depending on how you read it, is either just like a very, very extremely devout guy or actually insane. Prince Rhaegal son of Daeron II, uh, was uh, known to be mad. Um, Arion, a.k.a. Arion Brightflame, the son of Maekar, brother of Maester Aemon Targaryen, brother of Aegon V, thought he was a dragon, made flesh, and wanted to turn himself into a dragon and decided he would drink wildfire and that would turn him into a dragon. And, of course, he died. I think you can say canonically that guy was nuts. And then, of course, Ares... (laughs) Targaryen, the Mad King. So that's like four mm-hmm. out of like multiple, like, uh, you know, out of dozens of Targaryens. I, I, and you, I wouldn't throw Helena in there, for mm. instance. So I, I think that it's a little bit of, it's an unfair saying, but not one that was really around during the events that we're watching in House of the Dragon. This would come much, much later.
3: Hannah asks, Good question. How did Damon yeah. and Rhaenyra find out about Luke's death so fast?
2: It's a good question. I don't know. Again, uh, Storm's End is quite close to Dragonstone; like it's 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 right there. And I would assume since many, many, many people witnessed this, the the argument in Storm's End mm. between Aemond and Luke, and you know, it would not take. Damon, that long to fly back to King's Landing and give the news. And also, assuming that Damon, as he said, has numerous contacts in yeah. the city, that there's a m- bunch of ways that word could have come, either through Damon's contacts in the City Watch, his various spies. Someone that is friendly to them in Storm's End mm-hmm. could have leaked the news. There were just like a lot of witnesses yeah. to that. Um, it's unclear, but it's certainly not—it's not unthinkable that they would have got that news that quickly. That news will spread very, yeah. very fast.
3: Derek says, "I was a little surprised that the Greens offered Aemon as a match for the Baratheon daughter. Was I wrong to perceive that the Baratheons were not really heavy hitters in terms of influence in Westeros?"
2: Oh, no, they're big time heavy hitters. They're one of the great houses, that, and um, meaning the most powerful, influential houses in the realm to which multiple lords, you know, swear their allegiance to these great houses. So that's like the Baratheons, the Starks, the Arryns, the Lannisters, et cetera. Like they're a big, big deal. And more than that, as we mentioned uh, previously during our recap, Oris Baratheon, who is the founder of House Baratheon was placed at Storm's End because of Aegon the Conqueror's largesse. Mm-hmm. They were very, very, very close friends um, and companions. And uh, Storm's End was formally and for centuries the seat of the Durand and Storm Kings. And that line ended during Aegon's conquest. And Aegon, because he a, was a good, chill bro, <laughs> was like, Oris, you're my guy. It's, by the way, rumored that Oris is like a bastard brother to Aegon also, Mm. so may have some Targaryen lineage. Uh, And so, you know, the Baratheons owe a lot to the Targaryens. And it's honestly crazy that Boros like repays them like this. (laughs) Um, But also they're legitimately a big deal. Like they're a very, very big deal. And they are a powerful, you know, they are the great house that is closest to King's Landing. Mm. So you definitely want to secure their support if you're at King's Landing.
3: Um, They're a big and finally, the last Ask the Mace the question of this season comes from Michael. And he says, we know that Danny's baby with Carl Drogo was scaled like a dragon. Is there some connection between Targaryens and dragons?
2: That's a great question. So Valerian legend said that the dragon lords were, quote, this is from uh, World of Ice and Fire, quote, descended from dragons and kin to those they now controlled, So that's what the Valerians said about themselves were that they were somehow like the evolution of dragons, the human evolution of dragons, and that they were all somewhat the same. Now, you mentioned uh, uh, um, Danny's stillborn baby from Khal Drogo and how it was born, I don't want to say deformed, but in this really unique, strange way that certainly makes you think about a dragon, Magor the Cruel. Uh, throughout his numerous attempts to have kids and, ha- and produce an heir, produced several – produced uh, children that were deformed in a very similar way. One was described as being eyeless with small wings. Mm. So maybe there's something to the legend. Yeah. Maybe there's something to it. You know, that that uh, certainly we understand that the Targaryen blood and we would imagine the dragon lord blood of old Valeria was important to why dragons listen to humans. Mm -hmm. So maybe there is some kind of shared lineage, magical shared lineage that has yet to be revealed. But certainly these very interesting births do suggest that. That's it for the last... Ask the Maester of this season. Thank you all for submitting questions. If you're waiting on uh, answers or you didn't get your questions answered, I'm going to be emailing people back over the course of the next few days and weeks. So uh, look for that. Uh, Up next, Hivemind. We will discuss lore from House of the Dragon in a book-centric, spoiler-filled conversation with our good friends from History of Westeros.
1: This week, X-Ray
2: Vision is absolutely delighted over the moon to welcome back Aziz and Ashaya of History of Westeros pod to discuss the lore of House of the Dragon with a particular focus on stuff that book readers would maybe be interested in. So this is going to be a book centric conversation. If you don't want to be spoiled on certain things, uh, please feel free to pass this by. But this is going to be book stuff, book stuff, book stuff. Y'all, it's great to see you. Uh, it's so wonderful to have you here. Yeah. Right
1: I'm,
0: I'm so excited to be on. This is my first time. Aziz was on last time. And we've been talking a lot of non-spoilery topics on History of Westeros lately. So I'm pretty excited to just all out spoilers today. Yeah, it's time. <laughs> we've all been
2: waiting. <laughs> well, before we before we do that, like your overall impressions, both of you, of of the show, of what we watched... Uh, what did what did you think House of the Dragon season one in the books?
1: I didn't. I couldn't have dared expect it to be as good as it actually turned out to be. I, I mm-hmm. couldn't have gotten my hopes up that high. I would have. That's just asking to be disappointed. I think so. Uh, and when it does deliver above expectations, hey, then you feel even better about it. And that's that's pretty much what happened. It's that low expectations. They came in way, 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 way above that. So uh, I'm super happy. They stuck to the lore pretty well. The changes they made were, were overwhelmingly good. Yeah. And that gives me faith about what's next.
0: Yeah, I would say my expectations were pretty low, you know, just because they have to be, like Aziz said. Sure. But it just blew me away how much like character depth that they mm-hmm. managed to mine from what is sometimes thinly written characters in Fire and Blood. I love Fire and Blood, but still, like I feel like they found so much depth there. And I'll say that I do a top 60 shows of each year. Right. Like top 60 shows I'm watching this year. This one made the number seven. So Game of Thrones never even cracked my top 10. Lucky. Yeah.
1: The faith of the seven. (laughs) (laughs) Lucky.
2: So here's a question for all of us. Uh, You mentioned the changes, the the different things that they did. Obviously, Fire and Blood is written in a very, very specific way. Different again from the two novellas, which also inform uh, this show um you know very dry written as as fictional history um what did you make of the changes and how do you delineate between something like lenor escaping to essos which is clearly meant to flesh out what we know in fire and blood and something like uh you know melis Erupting through the floor of the dragon pit, which is not in the books, but which you would have imagined if it did happen, hundreds, if not thousands, of people would have witnessed it, would have talked about it, et cetera. It'd be hard yeah. for anyone to miss that one. How do you? So how do you? How do you differentiate between a uh, an addition and a true change in the things that we saw over the course of the season? Anybody.
1: That's a good. That's a great question. For the most part, I try to. Whenever they overlap well enough, I I merge them into one. Right, mm-hmm. but as you said, there are some ones, some you just can't do that with like the floor exploding. <laughs> yeah, uh, that it just you're right. There's almost no you can't really conceive of, of that not being in the history if it really ha- if it supposedly happened. So that's that. That goes back to something George said in his said I guess a couple times. He said it in an interview with us that. There's different canons. There's just different mm-hmm. versions, and that's the case for so many other fandoms. I mean, how many? There's lots of canons for Star Wars, Marvel, oh, yeah. oh, right? Yeah. Like how many Batman movies have there been? So there's more. I mean, even though those are similar, they don't drastically change from one to each other, from mm-hmm. one to another. Like this ultimately isn't a huge change, even though it's like you said, it's hard to imagine how it didn't make the histories. It also just, it's taking us to the same place. It's not, mm-hmm. like, yeah. it's not a big diversion. It's not a branch off. It's just a different bump along the road. So, yeah, I, and I like how it sets things up, that, that particular thing. You know, we've got mm-hmm. hatred from the peasants coming and hatred towards the dragons and that's all, that's all going to work out really well. Yeah. Oh, end, that's so. going to work out <laughs>
2: tremendously. <laughs> yeah. It's going to go really well for Which everyone. by the way, we don't have to be coy about it. We can actually <laughs> oh. say what's going to happen is the people are going to, be so furious at dragons that they are going to attempt successfully, in many cases, to massacre them in the, in the very dragon pit where this event took place.
3: So, like you said, it all leads to the same place. Yeah, I think that's been really well set up there. Yeah. 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 And, you know, Jason mentioned, like, the contextual additions. Something that I just adored in this show that I was not expecting was, like, the way that they built out Alicent's character arc and kind of Mm -hmm. changed her from this conniving person to this much more, there's a much more, like, amount of empathy and and storytelling there to tell us. What were some of your favorite kind of additions and added added context that you weren't kind of expecting to affect you as much as they did?
0: I think you named a great one right there with Alicent, for sure, because I think, as, as a book reader going into it, I was primed to be anti alicent going into the <laughs> show oh, for sure. but i tried i tried to have an open mind and she's wearing
1: an Allison shirt
0: i'm, no, I'm wearing <laughs> an aimen shirt oh, you're wearing an shirt my bad right.
1: <laughs> i wore an Allison shirt last but, like, time. i was
0: I, I was primed to hate Alicent, but regularly Alicent did prove me wrong. And I think that was one that that really the show added a whole lot. And I, speaking of Amond, I am wearing an Amond shirt right now. And I'll say going into the show, I was not an Amond fan. Mm-hmm. I wasn't... I didn't read Fire and Blood and go, oh, yeah, this guy, this that is the guy great. for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then I see the show and you see like these levels to the character where like he was bullied as a kid and he, I, I don't know, they... There's a lot of context, like you said, that they mm-hmm. add to these characters that even when we see like their actions in Fire and Blood, and even if those actions remain the same, knowing everything that went on behind the scenes changes it so much. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's a, it was a really wide-open sandbox they had to imagine these characters, and you got to give them a lot of credit for choosing what they did which worked out so well like you said shea said the, the characters were so well done there were so many characters we did not expect to care about i mean damon reading fire and blood you may not have love him or hate him you knew he was going to drive the action and be interesting right, right? You, yeah that that you could see that coming uh viserys you couldn't see him being so interesting necessarily mm-hmm. george couldn't see, couldn't see
0: that coming george didn't, <laughs> yeah. right. george didn't even see that coming like you,
1: you, you've Pulled one up by the master there. They really got that one. That's a real feather in their cap. And then, yeah, Allison couldn't see that coming as well. Eamon. Like, who who could predict that? You know, you just can't see that coming. So th- that's the kind of stuff that was legitimately surprises for us book readers. It was how well they did the characters. Yeah, we're not surprised by Vagar chomping Erex. We're not surprised. Right. Mm-hmm. We're not going to be surprised when Jace goes down on his dragon in the Battle of the Gullet. You know, we weren't surprised by the Red Wedding, you know, at 10 years ago, whenever that was. So, but we were surprised by things like this, these characters, and that's that's the core of the story. We want it to be about the characters. Mm-hmm. The Vagar killing Arax isn't like this incredible historical milestone. It's we care about like how both sides are going to react to it. I mean it mm-hmm. is an incredible historical milestone, but that's not as important as what Alicent and Otto and Aegon are going to do and what Rhaenyra and Damon and Lu- and Jace and they're going to do. Yeah.
2: One I you know I think the the depiction of Viserys and shouts to Patty Considine it, it, for a, just an imperial performance. Imperial, uh, yeah. you know, <laughs> is uh, the kind of magic of that character. Is that I mean, you're absolutely right. Like in the books, it's just he's a weak king. Period. Mm-hmm. Point blank. Like, that's it. It's very cut and dried. He just was not a strong leader. Did not really care to do it. Wasn't that interested, and was pretty unplugged from things. Obviously, the show adds a lot of super interesting flesh and blood he's still kind of disconnected at times but you understand emotionally where that comes from and he was essentially maybe the rarest thing in this in in westeros which is like a good honest person (laughs) Um, and i I was talking to um on the official pod we were interviewing ryan condal um uh johnson and i and ryan said something interesting which I had never really thought about. I mean, you think about fire and blood as being written by these unreliable fictional historians, but he added this bit of context to it, which he said, you know, it was written by these unreliable fictional historians who were heavily biased toward the greens. These were green mm. people. And I had never really thought about it that way. And I wonder, thinking about that, does that does that recontextualize anything? from this show and from the books now that you kind of think, wow, like were these like actually green zealots that were like, of <laughs> course they would paint Viserys as this absolutely meek character and Rhaenyra as this like iron handed despot who couldn't wait to like crack down on King's landing, et cetera. Um, does that change anything for you? Cause I, I was kind, I was like very, very lightly mind blown by that when he said that. <laughs>
0: oh, I think, in the fandom there's always been this kind of uh perception that f- that fire and blood is anti Rainiera is anti sure. that that, that, For that sure. there is that it is colored by that and but I think more often people are focusing on the anti black part versus the pro green part. Right. To speak to mm-hmm. what you're saying Whereas like the fact that because they are pro green that does mean that Viserys is colored differently, Um, so yeah, I I would agree with that, with that take for sure. But I also think that they're also anti. They say some anti-green things as well in it because I think it, it, in as much as they're pro-green or anti-black, they're also kind of just. Biased maesters against, yeah, like it's, they're kind <laughs> yeah. of biased against women in general. Like even mm-hmm. though oh, so Allison sure. is like the queen, they're still biased against Allison as a green. Oh, yeah. I guess is my point. Yeah, yeah,
1: uh, I would agree with that. It's it is it has a different set of biases. It's it's maybe more biased against the blacks than it is pro the greens. You know, mm. because the the green faction did cause a lot of trouble even back at back at Hightower land where the Citadel is next door, which explains a lot of the influence right away there is, you know, there's, there's, I'm sure there's some bad feeling around there because a lot of their own vassals turned against them. So it can't just be straight up propaganda because it might've Mm -hmm. been, in other circumstances, it might have been straight up like rewriting history entirely. If they had had an overwhelming victory, heh, uh, you yeah. know, if they had won- taken the crown and won easily, yeah. they could have. They would have directed the historical narrative even more. But I think they didn't have that kind of leeway here. And that's great writing because it fits with the level mm-hmm. of victory. Like if it had been propaganda, that would be like, well, how did they get away with this? When, but you do <laughs> see minor things like not counting Rhaenyra as having been queen. Like that's yeah. a pretty good example, mm-hmm. a pretty strong yeah. example right there. That. Um, well, they didn't make everybody good guys, but they, t- you know, these important big things were were omitted permanently.
3: Yeah, one of the things that I'm really interested in, specifically from the finale, and I'd love to kind of get your thoughts on it. You mentioned like amen's journey and the way that it fleshes him out, and this idea of him being like a bullying victim who's then gone on to find his power. They do this really heartbreaking thing in the finale where they have this change where it's not this intentional killing right. to start a war. It is an accident of an egotistical kind of child trying to get his revenge how do you feel like knowing what you know as book readers and stuff that's going to shape his journey as as we move forward that specific change and did you like the change what i really like the change because i feel like it's a change that
0: gives nuance to amen's character without absolving him mm-hmm. right yeah. like he's I not agree. it's not just a misunderstanding that. right he he's still he he's still committed manslaughter like he still he still killed this kid um like he's still culpable for it whatever but um addressing your other part of your question for me knowing that like the history books have it down as Amond killed him and yeah. that he was goaded into up. it and all that so to me that points to the idea that Amond is going to own this that yeah. aemond is going to as aziz put it to me he said it's better to be evil than incompetent mm-hmm. uh the general idea is that Eamon's going to be like, well, I I didn't mean to do this. I didn't mean to be a Kinslayer, but no one's going to believe me anyways. I think he has to own it. So my big question is who Amon would tell the truth to. Like, will Mm. he tell Allison? Will he tell his mother or Otto or Aegon?
2: Or Alice Rivers.
0: Or Alice Rivers. exactly exactly who I was
2: going to say is (laughs) it's (laughs) going to be Alice Rivers, right? I feel
0: like we'll... Right, we'll see him open up to... That's what I would like to see, is Eamon confess this to someone, I suppose.
2: Mm. Well, they kind of have planted the seed of, you know, Eamon's, you know, the kind of physical side of him in terms of, like, relationships, sexual relationships, and, uh, you know, earlier in in the season, Mm -hmm. I think it's the penultimate episode when he goes to the brothel and they recognize, they remember him, Mm -hmm. and there's clearly something that's... Setting off in his his mind about that, I could really see him telling Alice what what actually happened. And yeah, um, on that, I were you? Sh- I, first of all, the the entire situation reminded me a little bit of the kind of tragedy of Jamie Lannister, yeah. and that like here is this thing that nobody. <laughs> Nobody really understands the truth of it, and now he's going to be painted with this name, which he does deserve, but not in the—he's not a kinslayer in the way everybody thinks. He—I—I—I I, I wouldn't say absolve him purely. Like he—he's—he incited that situation. He made it happen. He didn't have to get on his fucking dragon and chase him. He did, but he did um, try and stop him. That's the big he thing did try that we and stop know. Him. Which, yeah. which brings me to this, which is how does. I had not thought about dragons as as being active decision makers in this story as they clearly are in that scene. Like, it changes mm-hmm. the way mm. I look at it a little. And even the way I look at, the you know, that confrontation on Dragonstone earlier in the finale when it was like, oh, yeah, like, Syrax kind of wanted to go. Like, Syrax was, like, roaring mm-hmm. back there and was kind of ready for it and— you know, Arax clearly against Luke's wishes went and fired that little blast of flame at Vagar <laughs> and, and Eamon, and then Eamon, you know, tried to get Vagar to stand down, couldn't get them to do it, couldn't get her to do it. What do you think about this idea now, where the dragons are these, you know, are active participants in a way that we did not expect in this story?
0: You know what it th- makes me think of first is we are going to see the dragon seeds, right? And right. two of those dragon seeds are going to be ver- riders of Vermithor and Silverwing, who you would imagine as the dragons of of Jaehaerys and Alysanne, those two dragons have to be pretty close, pretty bonded, I would assume. And so that's where my mind goes first is the idea of these, the dragons who are close to one another and the idea of them ever having to fight near one another, I guess. So what about mm. you? Aziz?
1: Yeah, I, I think I, I definitely agree with that. And there, when the concept was thrust more in our faces to, in the show, we realized that there are some pretty solid examples from the books as well. Like the most, overwhelming being Area and Bellarion right in the time of Septon and Barth and Jeharis and Alessand, but also Syrax when Joffrey tries to mount her in fireblood and perhaps and Daenerys just yeah. Drogon going where she, he wants he, she doesn't yeah. have control she gradually mm. learns to control him but yeah. first he's doing what he wants and that kind of implies that there may be another time where he goes does what he wants any dog owner for the He's most like, part, no, there's <laughs> a time where, like, a squirrel runs past, and the dog just jerks you like they want to run after that squirrel. Like, it's the base- same basic thing, except this is a gigantic monster. Like, by the way, it's hilarious that the way a lot of people are personifying Vegar, they're like, okay, giant, uncontrollable, murderous <laughs> lizard. Mm, grandma. That's what we'll <laughs> call her. She's grandma. <laughs> I was like, "What?" It's like, actually, okay. Angry yeah. Graham. All right, I guess I could kind of see that. <laughs> I love that. But I love the idea. I love the plot in general. The idea that they're not in control. It was set up really well with Viserys saying mm-hmm. the idea that we control the dragons is an illusion. All throughout the season, they've had like little b- hints of dragon and rider having a bond. Like when mm-hmm. Damon is hit by the fire arrow, when Rainier is giving birth. Uh, and other ones. There's other examples that I'm not thinking of, but y'all know what I'm talking about. There's, yeah. there's plenty of little ones and then they get bigger and bigger. And this last episode, there were like five of them. So they're really just like hitting us with that, uh, presumably because there's a lot more of it coming in the future seasons.
3: Yeah, like, so. okay, so this, I kind of touched on this. This was a, I, I'd love to know if you think, if you can think of any examples of this. So uh, one of our listeners, Whitney, who I who I shouted out, had messaged me after seeing Damon singing to Vermithor and the mm. lyrics of the song being about this three-headed dragon. And is there any examples of somebody bonding with two dragons and using blood magic to do it? Because I feel like that that was Whitney's idea of what Damon may have been doing after the death of, of Visenya.
1: Well, there's no uh, there's no examples of one person bonded to two dragons, though there is a, a reference in Fire and Blood of a time when Lena took ship and Damon brought both his dragon and Vagar. Mm. Like Vagar f- somehow is commanded to follow him. So there was some way they got that to work. But that isn't a bond. That's just a command. Yeah. So, but Ashea had a really good idea of what this scene was setting up in terms of the dragon seeds and um, what's coming.
0: Yeah. I, I kind of feel like Damon is trying to. Trying to get Vermithor and the other dragons more used to to people mm-hmm. yeah. to kind of get them ready to be ridden it's to be tamed. Yeah. yeah, it's been like yeah. de- I think about it, it's been like 20, yeah. 30 years since anyone rode Vermithor. He might think, hey people will have a better shot at taming this dragon if I've been coming and singing to Vermithor. And ma- and again, maybe he's thinking of his daughter, Reyna specifically mm. or, or whatever, but he's maybe trying to ease the path there. So like he is cultivating a, a human and dragon bond, but in the pursuit of someone else actually bonding the dragon, I guess oh, is I my that. take on it.
1: It's yeah, like a primer, that's, yeah. <laughs>
2: that's really cool. And we've already, you know, we're already... We, it's already been foreshadowed to, for us to think about these Targaryen bastards, you know, when they go to the the children's fight club in Flea Bottom <laughs> and see one of Aegon's bastards down Terrifying. there. Uh and Horrifying. So certainly, you know, we should presume that there's any number of Targaryen bastards running around both King's Landing and, you know, uh, Driftmark and Dragonstone. I, I was... Thinking about like season two and what events from the books we might see in season two and when uh, it I, you know Jace is heading off to the North eventually to go treat with Craig mm-hmm. and Stark. That's gonna be fun, but you know uh it George says he wants four seasons, certainly, the appearance of the Northmen doesn't really occur mm-hmm. until the the war is basically like winding down at yeah. that point, so. Do you think there's any way where where they speed that up? I guess we're going to meet Craig and Stark, I would imagine, next season. That's absolutely going to happen. But in terms of, like, the Starks and the North in general joining the fray, do you think we see that next season?
1: Well, we have the the advance— Army of Roddy the Ruin, which that right. they might mm-hmm. tweak and make a Stark or something in charge of that. Maybe Uncle, maybe, rather than using Roddy, I think they'll probably just still stick with Roddy the Ruin, but they might use a different leader, maybe someone who did me to bring the Starks or some a more familiar house in. Um, it would be wild to have it be like a Car Stark or a Bolton or a Manderly. Oh my gosh! Rather than yeah. a, <laughs> rather than a Dustin, because the Dustins aren't very well known. They are just as prominent, like the Dust, yeah. in terms of the history of the North. The Dustins are just as prominent as other names, but they're definitely not as familiar to TV viewers. So they might make a small tweak there. Um, but I know it's going to be exciting to bring the North <laughs> back in. it. fans are going to be so excited to? See oh my god! They're going to be crazy. People are going to love Krigan. <laughs> they're going to love it. And Sarah Snow is going to be really interesting too. That's yeah. when they have a lot more room to Ooh. develop a story that that it's hard to imagine for us. It's like, well, there's some certain elements we can pick at and kind of feel like they're going to use that, but
0: Yeah, but they, I think they set up yeah the Jace's sojourn with the with the Starks really well with how much they've shown Jace is aware of his bastardy, right? Mm-hmm. Like he, he, he is aware. It weighs on him. So I can't, I just feel like there's so much room for them to show Jace in Winterfell and he meets this bastard girl and he has a bond with her and doesn't judge her as much because he knows he is. Like, if I had been wondering whether I thought they would do Sarah Snow or not, I, those, any reservations disappeared once they like really seemed to emphasize Jace
2: caring about this. I mean, yeah. double date. Eamon uh, and <laughs> Alice and Jason, <Jace> and Sarah.
1: <laughs>
2: Rivers and snow. Somewhere and just go. like, iron this out.
1: <laughs> they both find a partner that matches part of their pathos. Like, Eamon yeah, right? finds an older woman. Jace finds another bastard. <laughs> and then, and they both get to bond over like their family members dying all around them (laughs) Uh, (laughs) trauma bonding (laughs) yes (laughs) how
3: romantic with kind of like the context of this season having happened you've had those expectations kind of raised obviously always good to keep them low even especially after (laughs) something good like this but is there a kind of quiet moment or a character that you wouldn't necessarily have expected to see in season two that you now feel like they might pick up or do justice Mm. to or kind of build out in that way. And obviously, Jason, to you too. Yeah. Okay, so for me... I, I I still have to
0: keep my hopes low because I've been through this before. I know better. <laughs> but I really really love the characters of Essie and Sylvana Sand, who are the mothers hair. of Game and Palehair. and they've set up Game and Pale Hair with referring to how Egan has multiple bastards. So I I feel like they're setting it up. I feel like with Mazzaria talking about the power of the people, they're also setting it up. But I won't believe I get my, like, progressive lesbian mothers until I actually <laughs> see them on screen, I guess. Like, I, I won't believe it till I see it. But those are the ones that I... There were a couple character beats in, in season one that made me like, well, maybe it's going to happen. Maybe we will get them. Yeah. Uh,
1: this is a great question. If I had more time to think about it, I might give another answer. But a good one popped into head. So I'm going to roll with it. And it's Mouse, which is the Ooh. mother of... Adam Valarian and uh, Alan Valarian. Adam, of course, ends up being the writer of Sea Smoke, right? And Alan Valarian, of course, ends up being Oakenfist. So he's pretty famous, although I don't know that they'll develop him a whole lot in in this show because his role is is pretty minor. And but his brother that role is huge. So that's uh, having her involvement in this being the mother of those children whose father they may have to lie about because they're going to say it's Laenor, but it's probably actually Corlys. And, well, that presents its own sort of second level of fake heirs kind of situation (laughs) that calls back a lot of the same stuff from Rhaenyra and Vaemond and all this other stuff. And so she's going to be caught in the middle of that. She's got to, like, agree to this lie so her children can advance. It's this very similar kind of scenario, I guess. But there's a lot of ways they could play it. They could kind of not do it. They could just not even include her at all. Potentially, so it's a real wide range of possibilities there.
2: Mm. Uh, thinking about season two again, I, I wonder if there are any events that you think for sure we will see this. Like I feel like blood and cheese, it's going to yeah. happen, right? Like <laughs> yeah. they, they've been yeah. foreshadowing it. I, I mean, I, I, I read the prominent. <laughs> Uh, shots of rats running throughout the <laughs> castle as foreshadowing of the appearance mm-hmm. of blood and cheese and the fact that oh, these yeah. rats are out of control, they're running through the passageways, who's controlling them? Is this rat catcher who just, guess what, knows how to move around these passageways? So I feel like we're <laughs> going to see that. Um, mm-hmm. Battle of the Gullet, you feel like we have to see. Are there any ones mm-hmm. that that you feel like that has to be in season two, just you know, based on the kind of cadence that we have right now?
0: Um, I mean, you said the biggest ones, I think, for me, but I guess the other one is we've touched on is the Dragon Seeds, which yeah. like, isn't like a bi- big battle, but I think it's a big sequence to me and one that I'm particularly excited for. I just have this great vision of like this bonkers montage of people coming up. I know, right? It's
2: going to be take, like, yeah. <laughs>
0: the memes are going to be out of control <laughs> yeah. after the
1: next day. The memes yeah. are going to go wild.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, like, that's what comes to mind for me. Um, But yeah, Rook's Rest, I suppose, is the other like. Big, big moment that I think that. of.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Rook's rest is was kind of what I was thinking, thinking of too, because it's got Vagar and Amon, mm-hmm. and it's got the death of of uh, Raines and May- and Malice, and then Aegon's horrible wounding and the maiming of Sunfire. That's there's no way they can skip that. I agree, especially right with that has to be being there. involved in a whole. There's ground troops battling as well. It's going to be really epic, and it's 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 amazing to think about it. It's a good thing season one did so well because the the budgetary requirements <laughs> for season two are, are substantially greater. Uh, the, I, I think that you mentioned the Battle of the Gullet. I've, I think that has a chance to be the most expensive battle they've ever done because mm. just thinking well, about all the pieces, that, all the dragons, all the ships, stuff, every single aspect of that is expensive as hell. <laughs> so.
2: I, this is why, you know, there's going to be, uh, season two kind of has to be action-packed just based on the books, Yeah, which makes yeah. me wonder as a kind of a follow-up, do you think we open with either Damon seizing Hall or the Battle of the Gullet? Like, it feels like there is a mm. chance that we open on a big battle right away.
1: Well, we have to have the dragon seeds before the Battle of the Gullet. Right. I guess. So we probably can't go straight to it. But yeah. it could be like episode three. I think yeah. maybe mm-hmm. really pushing it. It could be episode two. But I think maybe more like I think Rook's Rest will be. First,
0: yeah, I think Battle of Gallant needs a little time. So I think I want them to take a little more time with Jace's journey north. Yeah. I suppose. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. worse, like, there's a chance that we start straight with Jace in the north, but I would like to see him stop in the Vale and see Jane Aaron. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'd be great. I would like to see the journey, but I, I don't know how I think that'll go, if I think they'll kind of skip over that or to have him take his time. And I'm also curious where Jace is when he learns about Luke's yes. death, because that's something mm-hmm. like we don't know. Like, that's where huge. is he going to be in the Vale? Is he going to be in Winterfell? Like, who's yeah. going to con- comfort Jace? If mm-hmm. he's in
1: Winterfell, you get Rob Stark Jane Westerling vibes all over again. Oh yeah. my it's gosh. A, yeah. A, that's part of what they'll bond over. So that yeah, that's really big. One battle that Bears mentioned that I can't say fit falls in the category of they'll definitely do it, but they're gonna be really tempted to do it if they can afford to, is the battle of Burning Mill, just because it's it sounds amazing to have a a big, huge windmill on fire spinning while yeah. people <laughs> are fighting all around with Caraxes and Damon involved. Like that's and that's where you have like Black Alley Blackwood putting an arrow through the dude's eye. And all this other stuff. So, like, they might have to cut that and just talk about it. But they're they're like we we they're gonna. I I imagine they're trying everything they can to to fit that one in. So I hope they do.
2: Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah, I wonder if the the character driven nature of this first season was to allow for the many battles (laughs) of season two. Do you know what I mean? This is like, there's unbelievable dragon action. Like there's great stuff, but it's so character driven. And the first few episodes are really like a chamber drama of just like one family. So I do wonder if how they would balance what people have loved so much about this season with the mix of the kind of unbelievable action and and speed that they're going to have to go through for for Mm. season two. (laughs) That's a good point that I was
0: thinking about, which is what what slow scenes are we gonna see mm-hmm. in season two? Yeah. What council scenes are we gonna see? Exactly. What, what what will give us the time to breathe with the characters? And one thought that I had was I kept thinking I kept coming back to Reyna, Targaryen, Damon's daughter, and how she goes to the veil and kind of just has this little courtly season where she's like being entertained by suitors and i i feel like that (laughs) is crucial here is for them to not just have battle 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 but but for us to see like here's what else is going on in the realm Mm
1: -hmm. yeah i agree with that there's some other potential like you said Jason and sarah we've mentioned that several times that's a great potential although maybe that's still really heavy it's not battle but but it's it's, you know romance quiet yeah. yeah Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you might have soft moments, like we said, with some of these, uh, with characters like Adam and Alan Valerian and maybe their mother, mm-hmm. Mouse, like I mentioned, mm-hmm. maybe with Nettles as well, someone who yeah. actually... Because, like, Ulf and Hammer are going to be partying after the battle, <laughs> they're like, yeah, we're Dragon Riders now, buddy, yeah, let's have some drinks, whereas Nettles and Adam are like... Wow. War is horrible. <laughs> so, which <laughs> is more relatable, I think, for most of us. So, like, that'll be soft and, and they'll have to slow it down to see them react to that. Because if I remember correctly, Adam goes and talks to Corliss and mm-hmm. is like, How do you process this? And he's, they have a conversation. So, that's got a lot of potential right there. And then, like, there's a lot of deaths. You know, people yeah. dying is going to be a chance for them to slow it down and have like funerals. Uh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Asha, you mentioned court scenes. Like, Otto's going to get fired. And yeah, finally. Kristen's Kristen's going to get promoted and, and, and power could go to his head. Just like it's definitely going to go to Aegon's head. Like we have yet to see what all the drunken debauchery Ugh. that this king is going to get into. They they created a monster and they, they don't realize it yet. I want to so. see an
0: epic Aegon party scene. I mean, that's, great,
2: that's actually a great point, because yeah. I think one of the themes that Rosie and I have been kind of hammering on is that Alison doesn't. She thinks she's going to be able to influence her son. Right. That's what her plan is, basically, to try and steer him towards the light. She doesn't realize how much she gave away when, you know, she just uh, said, let's crown him in front of everybody and let's do it. I would expect that we're going to really see a very, very sidelined Allison next season. Like, she's—I I would imagine that, you know, it's kind of between the lines in the book— but she's—I would imagine she's going to be extremely frustrated by the lack of pull that she has going forward into season two.
1: I have a strong prediction here, which agrees with what you're saying, and it fits in very well, I think, with what Fire and Blood sets up. Okay, so we know Otto's going to get fired, and it's going to be because right. Aegon is impatient with yeah. with mm-hmm. writing letters, even though the letter writing is going to end up working out even after yeah. Otto's gone. Um, so Aegon gets impatient, fires Otto, and is a Strike against his mother promotes Kristen Cole to hand, which takes him away from being Mm. her like top protector right hand man. He goes to, you know, he's like, well, I can't be your right hand man anymore. I'm the hand of the king. And then he's out of King's Landing. He's not he's he's out in the field. So she doesn't have him by her side anymore, which we've seen how much that matters. Kristen yeah. Cole's presence in the cou- in the council room after the king's death was huge. Without him there, she could not have done Mm-mm. what she did. She could not have gotten to Egon first. Like not, All that falls apart. She doesn't even have that option. So it's like when Cersei had the mountain at her side, her, her yeah. demeanor and what she could do and intimidate her ability to intimidate. Politically, it was massively changed there. I think that's what Allison will lose. So it's exactly mm. what you're saying there, Jason. Her influence will go away, and this is multiple mechanisms as to it can be stripped away. Um, a, he just doesn't listen to her. B, he takes away her supporters.
3: Yeah, Whew.
2: I hate Kristen Cole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what fucking,
1: what a, I mean we're it's gonna, gonna be exciting. <laughs> listen,
2: we're gonna people are gonna learn to hate him even fucking more uh, yeah, next right. season. Um, any, and then finally, just like any predictions for season 2 you know where do you think where do you think the season ends and mm. any predictions that you might have
0: mm ends where i've thought a end? lot about where i think it begins cuz i think it begins like starts off with some blood and cheese action but i hadn't
2: oh, gosh hadn't put a lot of thought
0: they, into where
2: i think if it they really give wraps. us blood and cheese episode 1 of season 2 that <laughs> <laughs> People are. Uh, that's just going to be a lot. I think yeah. it's going to be. People are going to like. Oh, you're That's what I think. <laughs> yeah, that's kind
0: of what I think. Is that like, Wave yeah. Rainera? Her face is so steeled at the end yeah. of season one. It just looks like the setup for. Okay, Damon, let's go all out. She's like now. I was, I was trying to uh, hold back,
1: but now,
2: um, yeah, sun for a sun, let's go. Yeah, like what do I think a final? What do you think the final moment of season
0: two would I be? I think maybe Z's? the fall,
1: of, the fall, of, the first fall of King's Landing. Maybe. Oh. Yeah. yeah, would be a, a pretty good way to end it. Uh-huh. It's not. It's not too far in, forward. And it, it makes sense. I mean, we know Amond and, and Cole kind of pull all the defenders away and they're like, hmm, opportunity. And yeah, so it could it leads to the eventually leads to the anarchy it can look like, you know, Rainier is ends the season on a, on a win. And which is kind of the opposite of how this season ends. Oh, yeah. We're kind yeah. of neat that way. Invert I guess that it. works out. Yeah. But um. Yeah, it'll be something we think about a lot <laughs> for the next uh, couple of years here. <laughs> but I think those are pretty strong options for sure. Um, um, one other thing I'm really looking forward to, is, since you asked that prediction-wise, I think a, surpri- a character that's going to surprise book readers is Hammer. I think a lot of I think mm-hmm. the fans, like more casual fans, will react very strongly to him. Because I don't think we book readers have realized just how... Imp- imposing he's going to look on screen mm. after he gets established and is riding that big ass dragon we just saw in yeah. <laughs> he can have that <laughs> dragon what no. he's a huge man He's going to wear a crown and have a giant hammer and probably be decked out in pretty boss armor after a time. His
0: fans are going to be so... The just, fan yeah. is going to be incredible. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, like talk about a villain that's just a villain, like straight up, like a guy whose power goes to his head right away. He's probably but I mean, a... if
0: they give him funny lines, he'll have a fan base. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So and I good armor. I,
1: I think <laughs> no. there's actually a lot of potential for him to be very entertaining, you know, like no. a, a driver of action that I think book readers kind of, he's almost an afterthought, which is weird because he's got a huge role, but... Mm. People don't like like an art show. People don't like ask us to talk about him or like yeah. he's not like someone yeah. people get like, gets brought up a lot, you know, so I don't know.
2: <laughs> I'll just say that I think my prediction for either the the penultimate or finale episode of season 2 is Otto's head coming off. Yeah. Oh, mirror, oh, yeah. mirror of Ned Stark season 1 uh-huh. that ending. Oh, I think nice. I think Otto getting got is going to be it. either episode 9 <laughs> or episode 10. <laughs> Of, <laughs> of season two of House of the Dragon any any final thoughts before we say goodbye it's been so wonderful I would love here. to
0: say how excited I am for the Blackwoods for Black Alley oh, yeah. and Blackwood yes. and Blackwood just like people are like what characters do we have to love I'm like you got these characters I guarantee you will love the Blackwoods I hope they give us the actual really good phrase because we got Sabatha Vibrant yeah. Frey who marries in and then we've got Forrest Frey who is is, is not bad yeah. he's like he's pretty legit actually so I'm looking forward to the jokes about uh,
2: the cool phrase.
1: <laughs> of course, the Muppet Tullies are coming. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <Muppet> <laughs>
1: wonder how they'll do that.
2: <laughs> uh, Aziz and Ashaya, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you can find them on the History of Westeros pod, on YouTube, and wherever you get your podcast. Anything else to plug, folks? Oh, I have one more thing to plug. I did a really
0: cool um, mashup of Arrested Development with the the Greens, like with Team like the Arrested <laughs> Development intro credits, where I mashed up the intro credits. It's like 18 seconds long, I and I'm going to do one for the Blacks as well. I might be doing more intro credit mashups because I realized I really don't like the intro credits for House of the Dragon very much. So, like, <laughs> why don't I just recreate the intro credits for all the things I like? So I was like, I might do, like, the Royal Tenenbaums intro. <laughs> oh, <I was> like, <laughs> keep going with it. So uh, you can find on History of Westeros, um, Arrested Development meets House of the Dragon. Yep. Oh, that's
2: so great, guys. You did a great job of that. Thank you for joining <laughs> us and uh, Yeah, and thank you so much.
0: Back. Yeah.
1: Yes, thanks for having us. We'll thanks. come back anytime yeah. you want. It's always great to uh, talk and we'll to you.
0: We'll get y'all. to see you in a month. At, let's uh, go to the got eh? Oh, let's yeah. go. And what's happening?
1: A big
2: thanks to Aziz and Ashaya from History of Westeros. Rosie, what do you have to plug?
3: You can find me on Instagram, Rosie Marks. You can find me at Letterboxd, same handle. Uh, I'm updating all my films. It's very fun to follow along. I have finally managed to watch one horror movie a day for October, which I somehow always always managed to struggle with. So that's been fun. You can find my writing at Nerdist, IGN, Polygon, uh, Den of Geek. I'll have some cool stuff coming up in the next Den of Geek magazine. And you can always just find me here talking about all this cool stuff.
2: Catch our next episode, November 4th. That's going to be a big Star Wars episode. Uh, Plus, a lot of conversations about our favorite horror movies of 2022. Plus, an interview with Run Sweetheart Run director Shanna Fest. Subscribe to the show on YouTube and, of course, follow at XRVPod on Twitter. And check out our Discord. You can find Discord link in the show notes to meet with lots of other fans of X-Ray Vision, fans of the projects that we talk about. And plus, Rosie and I were there all the time reading your theories, reading your conversations, and chiming in. Five-star reviews. We love them. We got to have them. We need them. We love to get them. And when we get them, we read them out. Here's one from Lehman, D.C., Love Jason and Rosie Thank you Thank you so much The feeling is absolutely mutual Love this podcast It's so nice to listen to people Who are fans Talk about something they love well, we feel the same way and we love doing it. Yeah, we it feel so lucky we get to do It feels absolutely delightful to do it. So thank you. X-Ray Vision is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Chris Lord and Saul Rubin. The show is executive produced by myself and Sandy Gerard. Our editing and sound design is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Dylan Villanueva and Matt DeGroote provide video production support. Alex Relaford handles social media. Thank you, Brian Vasquez, for our theme music. We will talk to you next week, folks. Goodbye. <laughs> it is it's it 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 this every mike? Arax is Arax is my favorite dragon, Mike. He's a baby, he's so cute. It's like a little baby dragon. Why do we send David, send anybody else, Mike? Why do you send a baby Arax to do it? They have like a dozen adult dragons over there, Mike. Like a dozen of them, they sent the fucking baby! To go do an adult's work? I'll take my hands off here. I'll take you away.